Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Maud Page, and I'm the Acting Deputy Director of Curatorial and Collection Development here at the Queensland Art Gallery and the Gallery of Modern Art. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we meet upon this evening. I would also like to extend a warm welcome to everyone here tonight and to acknowledge a few people. Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and, Pres and President, Griffith University, Mr. Guo Peng, Deputy Consul General of the People's Republic of China in Brisbane, Mr. Derek Brown, State Director, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Honourable Larry Anthony, Director, SAS Group, Councillor Norm Wyndham, McDowell Ward, Ms. Michelle Robinson, Vice President, Australia-China Business Council, Australia Queensland, and Professor Andrew O'Neill, Director, Griffith Asia Institute. Apologies as well for Mr. Graham Quirk, Lord Mayor of Brisbane, and Ms. Lenine Ford, Chancellor Griffith University. I would sincerely like to thank the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University, particularly Andrew O'Neill and Natasha Vary, for working with the gallery to co-present the Perspectives Asia program. This is our final Perspectives Asia lecture for 2012, and it has been an extraordinarily successful year. We very much look forward to continuing the significant collaboration next year with another dynamic and wide-ranging series of lectures which investigate contemporary politics, society and culture in our region. The gallery has had a long association with contemporary art in China through the Asia-Pacific Triennials, which began in 1993. The APT, for which we've left you some invitations on your seats, um, has always had major representation of Chinese artists, allowing the gallery to build one of the most significant public collections of contemporary Chinese art in the world. We certainly look forward to continuing this direction with our future exhibitions and collection program. So we are indeed very, very honoured to have Her Excellency, Ms Frances Adamson, Australian Ambassador to the People's Republic of China, as our speaker tonight. Ambassador Adamson took up her posting in August last year. She served in the Australian Consulate General in Hong Kong in the late 1980s and was also seconded as representative to the Australian Commerce and Industry Office in Taipei from 2001 to 2005. She has had two postings, 1993 to 1997 and 2005 and 2008, to the Australian High Commission in London, worked at the Australian Permanent Mission to the United Nations in New York in 1992, and was Chief of Staff to the Minister for Foreign Affairs and then the Minister for Defence in 2009 and 2010. Ambassador Adamson is Honorary Patron of the China-Australia Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, Patron of the Australia-China Alumni Association, a member of the Advisory Board of the Australian National University's Australia Centre on China in the World, and a member of the National Board of the Australia-China Business Council. I would also like to acknowledge this board for their support of her presentation tonight. The title of Ambassador Adams' lecture, as you see on screen, is Queensland and China in the 40th anniversary year of the Australia-China relationship. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Adamson. Thank you very much, Maud, and it's always good to be given the opportunity for the last word of the year in the Perspectives Asia series. Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President, Griffith University, 
uh, Mr Guopeng, Deputy Consul General of the People's Republic of China in Brisbane, Professor Andrew O'Neill, Director of Griffith University's Asia Institute, Mr Russell Storer, Curatorial Manager of the Gallery of Modern Art, Ms Michelle Robinson, Vice President of the Australia-China Business Council, Queensland, my colleague Derek Brown from the DFAT State Office, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. The Asian Century White Paper released by the Prime Minister last week outlined ambitious targets for, for Asia literacy in Australia. I think this audience here tonight more than meets that 2025 aim, and I know I didn't have a chance to speak to absolutely everyone beforehand, but uh, for those of you I did, I mean, you're, you're really doing some, uh, some very exciting things, so let me acknowledge that at the outset. Uh, but also let me acknowledge Griffith University's Asia Institute and the Australian Centre for Asia-Pacific Art at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art, for tonight's joint event. Six weeks ago, I was delighted to have the opportunity to speak at another Griffith University forum at Peking University in Beijing. I spend more of my time actually speaking about Australia and China in China, uh, but it's wonderful to be back this week uh, to be speaking about Australia and China in Australia. Uh, the, the Peking University Forum was part of the highly successful Australia-China Futures Dialogues. In that speech, I outlined my views on the Australia-China relationship over the next 20 years. I said then that we, we have a responsibility, we all have a responsibility, uh, to build a future pathway for the Australia-China relationship. But I said I expected that that relationship would be characterised by friendship, close cooperation, open dialogue and shared benefit. This evening it is again a privilege to engage with Griffith University, this time to discuss the Australia-China bilateral relationship at 40, seen through the lens of Queensland. Through a number of recent initiatives, Griffith University's Asia Institute <clears throat> has reinforced its position on the top rung of Australian institutions, making a valuable contribution to our lively China discourse. The Australia-China Futures Dialogues, under the chairmanship of Professor Andrew O'Neill, brought together thought leaders from business, academia and government to explore how increased cooperation in trade, education and other areas could enhance the depth and breadth of the broader Sino-Australian relationship. And I note Griffith University's engagement with Asia is itself formidably broad and deep including a healthy cities partnership with Shanghai and a partnership with the Institute Pasteur Shanghai to establish a joint research centre that will work to develop new vaccines for infectious diseases, just to give two examples. It is equally a pleasure to be hosted in the Queensland Art Gallery, an institution which itself enjoys a long history of contributing to the fabric of society, not just in Queensland, but also in the wider Asia-Pacific region. China is certainly not a recent discovery for Queensland. Indeed, the Queensland and China relationship has long historic links. I read a newspaper article from the Courier Mail the other day and Professor Colin McCarris, who I see just there, uh, was sending off 11 young Queensland students to teach English in China. Nothing unusual about this, you might think. I think he's been doing that for quite a long time. But this article was from January 1979. 
And one of the students was none other than Clinton Dines, a proud Griffith alumnus who went on to establish himself as one of Australia's leading business people in China. By the way, the article noted that the students would be paid the princely sum of 260 renminbi a month for their services. In today's money, that's about 40 Australian dollars. It was obviously worth a bit more then. But that was reckoned to be, quote, high by local standards and would allow them to live in reasonable comfort, unquote. I'm not sure whether Clinton would entirely agree with that, but I can assure you he lives in reasonable comfort these days. Uh, further back in Queensland's past, as the Queensland Historical Atlas notes, when gold and other materials were discovered in Queensland in the 1800s, Chinese miners and entrepreneurs followed. The Chinese population filled a variety of roles, including as storekeepers, furniture makers, uh, banana growers, they were also fishing and in the pearl diving industry. Indeed, one of the earliest recorded Chinese immigrants to Ch Queensland, Jimmy Afu from Canton, worked as a publican in central and northern Queensland in the 1860s, moving through Rockhampton, Charters Towers and other towns with his wife Evelina and their 13 children. And in more recent times, Queensland's first sister relationship with China was formed over two decades ago when Queensland partnered with Shanghai in what was undoubtedly a very good choice of dance partner on both sides. Indeed, Queensland appears to have been quite astute in its selection of sister city and sister state partners over the years, having benefited from the guiding hand of Tom Burns, your former Deputy Premier, who made an enormous contribution to the development of Australia-China ties, including having participated in that history-making first visit by Gough Whitlam to China in 1971. Among Queensland's 15 sister city or sister state relationships, out of a total of 82 pairings between Australia and China, are some real standouts. In addition to Shanghai, uh, you have uh, Guangdong, a friendship relationship in 2008, uh, Chongqing and Brisbane, 2005, Shenzhen and Brisbane in 1992, Xiamen with Maruchi Shire in 1999, and one of Queensland's most recent pairings, Wenzhou with Ipswich in 2011. And of course, Wenzhou is that dynamically economic pilot city which uh, shows us in many respects the future of China. These are all booming towns in Australian parlance with Chongqing population 30 million, more of what the Economist Intelligence Units calls a megalopolis, as is Shenzhen. It is worth keeping these histor strong historic ties in mind as we continue our engagement with China and build on the work started by many before us. In some ways, Queensland's engagement with China really is a model of complementarity, economically, in society and in scientific endeavour, or what the Chinese like to call a Shuangying win-win relationship. The trade figures are strong, with two-way trade in goods between Queensland and China worth almost $13 billion last financial year, a long way from the $2 billion relationship a decade ago. Though China still lags behind Japan as Queensland's second largest goods export market. Yesterday I visited Chinchilla to see firsthand one of the LNG projects that are sprouting up in Queensland on the back of increased North Asian demand, including from China, for cleaner forms of energy. And last week in Beijing, I attended a signing ceremony between BG Group and Sihanouk, 
uh, one of the state-owned oil companies, of a heads of agreement covering both increased equity in the Queensland Curtis LNG project and an additional purchase by CNUC of 5 million tonnes a year of LNG from BG Group's global portfolio, including Queensland. This, of course, complements Queensland's already strong claims as a world-class energy producer, with a good track record as a reliable and competitive supplier of coal. But Queensland also enjoys a strong services trade relationship with China. China is the largest source country of international students studying in Queensland, with something like 21,000 students last financial year, and a major source of tourists, with just under half of all Chinese visitors to Australia last year visiting Queensland. I think that was something like 202,000 Chinese visitors spending $409 million in the year ended September 11. And many Chinese who visited Queensland take delight in telling me about the beauties of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I'm pleased that I know them myself, but it really does have a very striking impact on them. Tourist links were further boosted during a visit to Beijing in July this year by the Queensland Treasurer and the Tourism Minister, where they announced China Eastern Airlines would fly direct from Shanghai to Cairns three times a week, bringing more than 700 Chinese visitors to Queensland each week. But trade figures do not, of course, paint the whole picture. And they certainly don't fully capture the deep and strategic engagement that Queensland has worked assiduously over many years to achieve. University and research linkages are excellent and often overlooked, uh, and they're an example, of course, of the practical long-term cooperation that is adding body to our China relationship. As I mentioned earlier, Griffith University is working with Shanghai on developing new vaccines for infectious diseases. And Griffith was a pioneer in establishing connections in China, having started one of Australia's first exchange programs with Chinese organisations as far back as 1980. Your colleagues at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology, based in the University of Queensland, are working with the Chinese Academy of Sciences on reducing emissions of volatile organic compounds. Another Griffith University team recently signed an MOU to promote research collaboration and knowledge sharing with China's Ministry of Science and Technology Agenda 21 on Sustainable Development and held the first Australia-China Leadership Dialogue on Climate Change Adaptation in Guangzhou earlier this week with leading Chinese academics. A University of Queensland team, the Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation, is working with scientists from Wuhan University to identify a link between diabetes and the structure of the glucose storage molecule in liver cells. And the QUT, School of Public Health and Social Work, has been working with Peking University's Institute of Child and Adolescent Health since 1998 on a program of epidemiological research. These are truly signs that Queenslanders are taking advantage of their place at the leading edge of innovation, using their world-renowned expertise in partnership across our region. Cultural and social links are also diverse and growing ever broader. I note the Queensland Government-sponsored Asia-Pacific Screen Awards promote films, directors and cultures of the Asia-Pacific, including China, to a global audience and the sixth annual APSA ceremony will be held here in Brisbane in a couple of weeks' time, with a record number of 264 films entered.
In short, Queensland has recognised and grasped the need to invest in its relationship with China across a wide range of sectors. Of course, there's more to be done, much more to be done, but you're very well placed indeed, in my view, to do that. On both sides of politics, the Queensland Government has in recent years developed a number of papers and initiatives covering emerging key sectors such as agribusiness, tourism and education. In particular, I commend the paper published earlier this year by Tourism Queensland, setting the direction for the China market, 2012 to 2016. It's a thoughtful and practical guide for navigating the opportunities presented by China's booming tourism market. The paper moves between the practical but the essentially practical, for example, recommending that hotels have hot drinking water readily available for Chinese guests to fill up their flasks, uh, and the strategic, recognising the changing patterns of Chinese tourism as the so-called free independent traveller market develops alongside the traditional package holiday model. And in this way, the relationship between Queensland and China exhibits the same features of our broader national-level bilateral relationship, cooperation, collaboration and creativity. The 40th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations offers a natural vantage point from which to envisage the future for our two countries. This will be increasingly shaped by existing and future investment trends. Chinese investment into Queensland continues to grow and at a national level, including through the work of the Embassy in Beijing, we continue to press for equal access for Australian investors to Chinese markets. Two-way investment brings great benefits to the people of Australia and to the people of Queensland. The purchase by Kofco, a major state-owned Chinese agribusiness company of Tully Sugar, just one example, has kept numerous jobs in the local Tully community in far north Queensland. And the raw sugar produced there joins a long list of other Australian agri-foods increasingly being purchased by Chinese consumers. Indeed, investment is central to the success of Australia's relationship with China. My work takes me across China from west to east and south to north, as the Chinese say, but it has also taken me to the iron ore mines of the Pilbara and, as I mentioned earlier, to the gas fields of the Western Downs. In China, I've met many Chinese who invest in Australia, and I've been struck by the number of times they tell me how much they value our stable and transparent business and investment environment. These things are sometimes contested in Australian newspapers, but I can only go by what uh, the chairman, uh, chief executives, presidents of state-owned enterprises and private Chinese investors say to me. Over the past four years, Australia has approved more than $80 billion worth of Chinese investment proposals, including in business and real estate. And the Foreign Investment Review Board has approved around 380 individual investment applications, with the vast majority of these from state-owned enterprises. In 2010-11, China was Australia's third largest source of foreign direct investment applications behind the US and the UK, but China still only accounts for around 2.5% of the stock of foreign direct investment in Australia. This is bound to grow, but it's still very, very small. Chinese outbound investment is really just beginning, and if Australia as a significant capital importing nation is going to continue to attract investment from China, 
we will need to remain welcoming and competitive. Indeed, I believe we will need to become more welcoming and more competitive. Investment, of course, is not just about how many billions of dollars are committed to major projects. It's also about strategic investment of a different kind by both countries in the future of our relationship, about what I call good policy making. This 40th anniversary year is also a good time to look back and see the longer term impact of significant decisions taken by governments and business leaders in earlier times. As I've often said this year, it must have seemed unimaginable to our leaders of the day back in 1972 that two-way trade, then just $100 million a year, would four decades later exceed $120 billion. But the significant decisions of the past, made by both countries, have set the scene for a future of prosperity. A decade or two or three from now, another ambassador might address a similarly distinguished audience and look back on the, on the results of these initiatives. The Australia-China partnership of 13 years ago to, to secure approved destination status for Chinese tourist groups to visit Australia, opening the wealth of opportunity for Australia and for new and deeper people-to-people -people links. The agreement between our central banks in March this year to support trade and investment through the bilateral currency swap mechanism and the landmark agreement in 2009 between BG and CNUC on the Queensland Curtis LNG project. But we can't talk about the future of the relationship or speculate on future ambassadors without talking about the future of China itself. Today in Beijing at the 18th Party Congress, China's leaders began a leadership transition peacefully and in an orderly way for only the second time in China's modern history. As the 2,270 delegates to the 18th Chinese Communist Party's Congress took their seats in the Great Hall of the People on Tiananmen Square this morning and started to deliberate the key issues facing China, they doubtless had in mind some of the major economic and political challenges of the next 5, 10 and 50 years challenges such as how to build the right conditions for continued economic development in the years ahead, to reduce poverty and income disparities, and create a secure and prosperous future for China's growing population. How best to manage the difficult process of China's economic rebalancing towards more sustainable consumption-led growth, and how China should seek to engage the international community on the key security, economic, environmental and development challenges we collectively face. What China's incoming leaders do know is that China will continue to change dramatically. For China watchers, whether cabinet ministers, diplomats, foreign policy professionals, business strategists, professors, journalists or Griffith University students, these are exciting times. I use that word deliberately because China is dynamic and vibrant. Indeed, it's difficult to express the scale and scope of this dynamism and vibrancy without reverting to clichés. And developments in China are important for Australia, given our trading relationship in services as well as goods, given our strategic relationship in the so-called Asian century, and given our ever-deepening partnership founded on close relationships between Australians and Chinese in both countries. We use this term people-to-people -people links uh, to describe this. It's a broad description which regrettably hides much of what we really mean, 
the personal, family, community and institutional bonds that deliver the creativity, flexibility, drive and resilience that underpin a genuinely positive bilateral relationship like the one Australia and China enjoy. China is exciting and it's an exciting place to be because of the tremendous potential for future growth in all of those areas I've mentioned and more. This is reflected in the Australia in the Asian Century White Paper released by the Prime Minister last week and which notes that the transformation of the Asian region into the economic powerhouse of the world is not only unstoppable, it is gathering pace. As you know, the White Paper provides a roadmap for Australia to navigate economic and social change that flows from Asia's rise. The map is one for the whole of Australia, for governments, business, academia and the broader community, including particularly, I think, students and young Australians. And it shows how we can become a more dynamic, resilient and prosperous nation, fully part of the region and open to the world. The White Paper reaffirms our support for China's participation in the region's strategic, economic and political development. It also welcomes China's rise, not just because of the economic and social benefits it has brought to China's people and the region, but also because it deepens and strengthens the entire international system. And of course, I encourage those of you who haven't yet done so uh, to download a copy, to take some time to read it, uh, and ideally, I think, to then think about your own uh, personal Asian century action plan. This is not something the Prime Minister has yet spoken about, and possibly if she did, uh, people may not feel too keen on it, but I hope you'll regard it as a sort of uh, a personal uh, rec recommendation from me, whether you do it on a personal basis, whether you do it on a, an institutional or a or a corporate basis, I think there, there is something to be said for really thinking through how to deepen our already close links. There's genuinely close and, uh, and positive uh, engagement at the political level, and I'll, I'll put a copy of this speech up on the Australian Embassy website, and you'll find that it, it details a lot of those uh, interactions in, and uh, engagement. I won't uh, mention them now, other than to, to note that uh, Vice President Xi Jinping, who's expected to be appointed General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party next week and then uh, PRC President in uh, March next year, has visited five of our six states, including Queensland and both territories. Uh, he's also expressed a desire to visit Tasmania. In Australia, we talk about the importance of Asia literacy, and it's, it's safe to say, I think, that China's leaders are making an effort to become Australia literate. Reflecting the strength of our engagement in the last four years, almost 50 Australian ministers have visited China, and 16 of them since I've been ambassador. Uh, supporting all of that, there are more than 30 formal high-level mechanisms covering the broad range of our bilateral activities. And Australia is one of only two countries in the world to have an annual defence strategic dialogue at the Chief of Defence Force and Chief of General Staff level. And a number of you will be aware that just last week the Australian Defence Force and their New Zealand counterparts conducted a humanitarian and disaster relief exercise with a contingent from the People's Liberation Army uh, near Brisbane. So from, from my point of view, the... The, uh, the future of our relationship and the future of China are two areas which I would characterise as strong, dynamic, exciting and full of potential. We're already a few years into what we're calling the Asian century and looking back now, 
40 years after the beginning of the formal bilateral relationship, we can really only marvel at the scale and scope of the achievements and the benefit each country has received. Queensland has invested considerably in its relationship with China and is in the right place and the right time to further diversify and strengthen this relationship. Your competitive advantages are a clean and green environment, a rich natural endowment, safe and friendly destination and a well-established brand are good building blocks for further developing your China relationship. I look forward to seeing what the future will bring and I know that if Australia and China are involved and if Queensland and China are involved, it will be exciting and well worth the wait. Thank you very much. I have a double pleasure tonight to close what was a, a wonderful uh, uh, talk this evening and also to close what's, what's been an absolutely fantastic year of events, um, Perspective Asia. And I'd, I'd like to start by paying tribute to our dear friends uh, at the Queensland Art Gallery in particular, uh, Sahanya, uh, Maud, uh, Russell and Ruth, who have been extremely supportive of Perspectives Asia. And, and I think you know, 2013 is going to be uh, e even brighter than 2012. Just in terms of the vote of thanks this evening, I'd, I'd like to touch on a couple of points that Ambassador Adamson uh, covered in, in her talk this evening. And, and the first one was the role of the Asia White Paper. And in a sense, it's, its role in laying down the challenge for Australians across all sectors of, of Australian society, you know, not, not, just the, uh, not just the economic sector, not even uh, just higher education, but right across the country, and asking the question, are we ready for the Asian, Asian century? And central to this, of course, is how we engage China. Um, some people believe that you know, the, the, the term Asian century is very much a synonym for, for the China century, and there's an interesting debate about that too. But what's clear is that um, engaging China beyond uh, economics and, and looking further, you use the term people-to-people -people, uh, links, that doesn't really capture the spirit of the exchange between ordinary individuals across uh, many sectors of, of Australian society, but it's absolutely key to the future of the relationship. And you know, right through from the increasingly large exchanges uh, between higher education institutions and, and Chinese academies, particularly in the area of science and technology, this is, this is a real growth area that doesn't receive a lot of media coverage, but it's, it's a burgeoning area. Right through to student mobility, um, outbound, inbound. Um, again, this is something that often goes under the radar screen, the sheer number of Chinese students coming to Australia, but also the increasing number of Australian student, domestic students travelling traveling to China. We're really lucky because we've had the benefit of Ambassador Adamson's insights uh, twice this year at Griffith. Uh, we had them in Beijing in September and we have them again here, here this evening. And it's, it's been a real privilege uh, to, to, to listen to you this evening, Ambassador. And I thank you uh, very much for taking time out of what is an incredibly busy schedule. And that's just in Australia when you're here, let alone what you're doing in China. So um, it's my pleasure to uh, present you with a gift, a very heavy gift, I might add, uh, on behalf of um, uh, the, the partners, uh, Griffith University and uh, the Queensland Art Gallery. So thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Indeed. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts. 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 Podcasts.